Hello. Hey, Darren. It's Adam calling. How you doing? <laughs> what, what is this? Why do you keep on introducing yourself? Am what? I being recorded? Yeah, Am I being recorded? You are being recorded. <laughs> wait, what is this for? Like, why do you keep on introducing yourself? Why, why should Adam, wait, 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 you're my brother-in-law and I have called this place. Why? <laughs> Why should I have called? I'm, I'm calling with one specific question. Why should people use Scalina Real Estate? Because you have showed up late for every single family function, which means that you put your clients first. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. All right. Have All right. a good day. Okay. Uh, good night. Good night. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Hello. 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 This is the Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. And welcome back to Vancouver Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Adam Scalina. And I'm your other host, Matt Scalina. And Matt, you sound like you are not in the same room as me. Yeah, we always do. I what? mean, no, yes, I am. I am. I am. Uh, I am in a different room than you, yes. You're in a different room. And, and uh, you, you were on, uh, are you on autopilot? Yeah, I have that first 30 seconds locked in. Yeah. Right, right, right. I was feeling good about it, but it's a big mistake there. Screwed up. So, My hey, bad. listen, uh, we, we, we don't usually like to do this where, where I'm calling you on the phone on, uh, on the podcast, but we've been trying to get together and it's, it's, uh, it's, it's really been tough in this market. And we're trying to keep this thing going on a weekly schedule. Uh, so I decided to call you. You're at home right now. It's it's late at night. You just uh, you just put your daughter to bed, and uh, let's podcast. Yeah, that's it. We're uh, yeah we have we have trouble seeing each other. We see each other all day long, so it's not actually seeing each other. But uh, but yeah, getting getting uh, the podcast going is um, difficult, especially with the equipment and everything. So yeah, no, I'm glad you called. Okay, perfect. So um, we're going to be talking today. Really exciting episode to about architecture yeah, and is. uh architects uh with rick morrow who's been a, a guest uh, back in again a, yeah back again by popular demand and he's uh he's a great guy he's going to be talking to us a bit about why to hire an architect what an architect does and then also a little bit about design and uh that sort of thing so i'm pretty excited yeah no it's really uh, i think i've said this before about rick but it's it's just good to have that insider uh knowledge uh, laid bare so For sure. really exciting episode for sure. But before we get to that, I wanted to talk about, and I, I'm not, I don't sure, I think I sent it to you. I don't know if you've had time to read it, but I received it a few days ago from uh, a client of ours who's kind of a higher up in the banking industry, sent on this BMO draft report called The Housing Market Blame Game. And it was published on June 17th, 2016. And it's uh, drafted by BMO's top uh, economists, um, Douglas Porter, and uh, a few other names that uh, I, I don't recall. I don't have it in front of me. But anyways, we uh, we wanted to kind of touch on that, and we kind of wrote out some of the points that, that come across in, in the article. 
Um, yeah, well, it's a really concise, um, you know, we might even be able to put it on our website here. Right. Uh, it looks like it's just in draft form right now, but, uh, but a really interesting piece. I mean, I'm, I've kind of scanned it, but I think I'll play the role of asking you about it uh, because you've, you've spent a lot more time with it. Sure, and I, I just saw it. It was on. Uh, it was featured in the Financial Post, so so somebody got a hold of it. So it's been distributed, but uh, the copy I have at least was <clears throat> says draft report on it. Um, so again, it's uh, it's BMO's top economists, and and the the crux of the of the article is that we're unlikely to see declines. Uh, in our market or in the Canadian real estate market, and it's it's mostly because the major driving forces are beyond the reach of traditional monetary policy. Can you break that down a bit? Yeah. Well. Well. Okay. So. So let's talk about just kind of what's going. Obviously, it's a hot market, and it's a hot market throughout Canada. Um, at the at the the premise of the article is is you know that the benchmark Canadian home price has risen by about 12.5% in the last month. Um, that's more than it has in the last nine years. So the big wait question... Wait a second, wait a second. The last month or the last year? Sorry, in the last month, 12.5% in May in Canada, the benchmark Canadian home price. Oh my God, wow. Yeah, drastic. So focused on Vancouver, that, that uh, that's it's, surprising. It's It's not focused on Vancouver specifically. It's focused on the Canadian market, but... Obviously, driving the Canadian market, it has a lot to do with the with the Vancouver market as well as the Toronto market, which you know seems to be pushing everything up. Wow! So the question the question becomes why, right? And uh, what I did is I just jot, jotted down basically the seven points that that they kind of identify as why it's going to be challenging with traditional monetary policy to actually curb the housing market and uh, cool it down a bit, which there's been a lot of talk about, you know, the Bank of Canada has come out saying that we need to address this issue. Obviously, locally in Vancouver, it seems, you know, Gregor Robertson, everybody's talking about. Yeah, I mean, Justin need. Trudeau was here two right. or three days ago talking about, uh, you know, potential policy being put into place. and Sure, and the IMF uh, and, uh, you know, it, and it goes on and on and on. So, but really, what they're saying is is the first reason, and we'll just get right into it because. Uh, I think but hey, just before be, sure. before we we get into it, just one question here. So the the idea of this article is is to say that um, as as prices spiral outside of the reach of of many Canadians, uh, and the that that's not going to stop. So everybody, you know, the talk of the bubble and the crash and everything else, that that's actually not going to take place and that any uh, attempts at government to curb this, this increase is actually is doomed or, or, or very difficult to undertake. Is that, am I right? Yeah. Yeah. To some extent, I think, I think they're saying, so traditional monetary policy, I, I think they do make some recommendations beyond traditional monetary policy, but I think what they're really getting at is more so um, right now we're in a tough position where we can, you know, as we have in the past, increase, say, the, the minimum down payment or increase interest rates, right? Something along mm-hmm, those lines. Mm-hmm. Those aren't, that's not going to have an impact on our market. And then they provide reasons why we're so busy and uh, why, why the real estate market is so busy and then also... Um, why? What's complicating things for government intervention? Okay. Okay. So, what are their what are their key points? So, number one, uh, they say that the millennials are entering the housing market. Um, 
you know, we've we've talked about this problem in in the past. If anything, yeah. it's kind of interesting. I I was thinking about this last week, and I've had a lot of clients buy their millennial kids' homes or buy mm-hmm. condos that they're renting out for their millennial kids. And we always see this at this time of year because obviously everyone's going back to school in September. So over the course of the summer, uh, you know, going to university in September, I should say. So over Mm -hmm, the course mm -hmm. of the summer, we see a ton of people buying up places in Kitsilano, Fairview, uh, basically on the bus line out to UBC, correct? I I met with a client for the first time yesterday from Texas, uh, 19-year-old going to UBC in the fall. They're looking to buy. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I, I was at an open house of ours the other day over in Point Grey and uh, tons of boomers coming through. And I thought, oh, wow, this I don't know if this is the right fit for downsizers. All of them talking about their kids. So, yeah. So millennials entering the housing market, whether it's millennials uh, with jobs who can afford the market or not, or if they're getting uh, assistance from the bank of mom and dad, who knows, but millennials are entering the housing market for sure. Um, so that's driving up demand. Demand. And that's across Canada. So it makes sense. Um, number two, baby boomers aren't downsizing. So, so you know, everyone's been saying for years, baby boomers are going to be selling their homes and entering the, the condo market. Um, basically, what they're, what they're say, suggesting is that baby boomers aren't doing that. They're, uh, they're, yeah. they're not selling their homes. What are your thoughts on that? Well, it makes me think of my wife's parents who don't, you know, it was at least six years ago and maybe between, you know, six to eight years ago when they retired, uh, they were talking about buying a condo. Uh, They went through a bunch of display centers, potentially going to buy, I remember Sunday, uh, Sunday discussions about them moving into a a condo. Right. Then they were going to sell their house. They actually listed their house, but they didn't want to put it on MLS. Uh, They ended up, you know, not selling their house. They're still in their house. It seems like they're going to be there forever. Um, or at least the next five, eight years. Right. So the process of a, of, a, of a baby boomer selling their house, if these guys are any indication, is kind of um, you know a process that takes 10 to 15 years. I think it's a slow, a very slow move. I was thinking about this as well. And, and uh, you know, I think what's happening too is a lot of people that I'm helping that are boomers that are buying, you know, condos in Yale Town or, uh, again, you know, uh, condos in Fairview or Kitts or, or even Mount Pleasant, they're keeping their homes. This is a secondary property for them. You know, they have a house in Calgary or they have a house in Toronto or they have a mm-hmm. house in, in Greater Vancouver, but they want, you know, perhaps a crash pad or a place to uh, spend some time. So Vancouver is almost becoming more of a, um, you know, almost a vacation destination or a yeah. part of the year destination. Um, so it doesn't necessarily mean that they're selling their primary residence yet, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, so, mm-hmm. so that's part of it as well. Um, the next one is jobs. So this has been obviously, it, you know, if, if anyone listens to the CBC, they seem to talk about this all the time. But um, Vancouver's been doing exceptionally well when it comes to uh, job creation and job growth um, in the past year. And basically what they're saying is Vancouver and Toronto have accounted for almost all of uh, Canadian jobs. Um, I believe it's one in four of the jobs in all across the nation. So huge. That's job incredible. Growth. Yeah, it is. And I, and I feel like we've talked about that before as well, right? It's almost like Vancouver is the inverse of Calgary uh, with oil prices plummeting and the Canadian dollar dropping. Uh, it spurs on, you know, 
all sorts of um, job creators here in, in the lower mainland, not right. least the, the film industry and, and tourism and the, right, you know, right. just to name two. Well, this ties in with number four, um, urbanization, and it's, it's largely a result of Canada's economy shifting from a manufacturing economy to a service-based, um, to service-based mm-hmm. businesses. So thinking of, um, you know, that these are most of these jobs are are located in Toronto and in Vancouver right now so mm-hmm. it seems to be uh you know very well much and that the case. that actually yeah and that speaks to i mean in terms of service uh oriented industries i mean tourism is is again i mean is Vancouver being a, a, a global city and a, a place that attracts people the real estate market attracts people from over the world but the tourist industry does too and i think um that's not a surprise at all that uh, that there's a shift going on in in the Canadian economy, just like economies are developed uh, economies all over the world towards right. uh, towards service industries. And I think Vancouver is poised to really take advantage of that. So that makes a lot of sense. For sure, for sure. So number five, we, we won't spend much time on this, um, but foreign money, which seems we talk ad nauseum about this in Vancouver and on this podcast, but... Uh, yeah, and uh, hey, just a side note: uh, Justin Trudeau was in town uh, a couple of days ago, and uh, uh, Tom Davidoff from UBC, uh, past guest, was right. uh, was meeting with him. He was one of the experts. So, are you, uh, which are, you know, are you suggesting way, that we're running in the same circles as uh, the prime minister? I was going to say my heart kind of sw- swelled with pride there uh, <laughs> because we're basically. Yeah, part of that that inner cohort. Right. I was a little choked. We weren't invited, but we actually um, call him JT. <laughs> <laughs> Me and JT. Yeah, so we won't spend too much time. We've we've yeah back back uh, episodes uh, have have quite a bit of uh, discussion on foreign investment. So yeah, we don't have to we don't have to do that. Right. Do any more on that? At least not today. Well, what did, and part of the obviously they make this point, which we've echoed here in the past as well. But um, you know, minimum town payments are not going to hurt foreign buyers. They're going to hurt domestic buyers, right? So mm-hmm. so in in talking about traditional policy, it's it's not going to be very impactful when it comes to. Uh, you know, uh, people with bags of money from other countries. Yeah. And, you know, not, not to belabor the point, but I feel like Mike Hofer made that point that, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, specifically millennials who are, who are hurt by tightening up those policies. Sure. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's, uh, just made me think of, of that episode with Hofer, but yeah, go on. Um, number six is supply. So, um, again, we've got this issue with, uh, not a lot of supply on the market, which, uh, again, we've talked about a lot on, on this show. Um, yeah. Number seven, the Bank of Canada cannot and will not raise interest rates right now because they're concerned about the sluggishness of uh, Canada's resource-dependent economy. So it makes it uh, a bit challenging to really do anything with interest rates. Yeah, well, and that that goes, I mean, that's Canada. That's also uh, all over, right? Like right. everyone's watching the Fed and... Uh, you know, really, since the crash in 2008, um, I feel like every time there's a there's interest rates are about to be raised, there's some sort of negative news about the economy in which uh, in which everybody gets cold cold feet about about raising interest rates anywhere. Uh, but uh, if they're if they're uh, slightly concerned in the U.S., they're undoubtedly concerned in Canada because the economy is not doing. Uh, anywhere near as well as as the u.s is right right 
And so um, basically they say what's likely to happen now that, uh, you know, the IMF and Bank of Canada and seems like everybody is is alarmed about the housing market. So um, some of the things that the, they suggest is that a, a policy, any kind of policy action needs to target foreign investment, speculation and land restrictions pretty much in that order. So um, I think if uh, if there's any... You know, if if there seems like there's any direction that we're we're going here in Vancouver, at least, is everybody seems to be talking about some kind of foreign foreign ownership tax or speculation tax or something along those lines that's going to um, uh, target exactly what they're suggesting. So, mm-hmm. well, and that's it goes back to Tom Davidoff's proposal uh, that he outlined well in that episode. Right. That's right. that's exactly what his proposal was. And I'm, ter- I'm curious if you can unpack this idea of, of what they mean by land restrictions. Um, I think opening up land restrictions. So perhaps uh, perhaps uh, anywhere from uh, rezoning to uh, uh, possibly um, agricultural lands expanding, that sort of thing. Hmm. So the, uh, pro density and and. And, That's uh, how I read it. I could I could be wrong. I might have to go back and read it again. But my understanding is uh, is is kind of opening up land restrictions. You know, and you always see. I mean, Bob Rennie is always a guy who uh, who is uh, polarizing, like anything else in Vancouver real estate. But um, he just had his his annual talk there, where right. where he seems to have uh, made a lot of similar points to this to this uh, Bank of Montreal. Um, feature on on real estate here in the lower mainland sure sure so adam what's the bottom line here so the way i'm reading it is is they're suggesting that uh based on all the the drivers that they're considering is that our market won't see any kind of slowdown or cooling effect anytime soon so um you know um they are encouraging that that uh any kind of traditional policy should be, um, you know, reconsidered, and people sh- and the government should focus on on the things that I just mentioned: foreign investment, speculation, and land restrictions. In interesting. That interesting. <laughs> yeah. All right. Sounds good. Well, hey, that's that's an interesting. Uh, that was interesting for me. Um, I, we should put it on, in the show notes here for anyone Absolutely. who wants to actually read the. Uh, read this uh, interesting report it's just a couple pages really sort of concise um uh and yeah really smart I, I should read it again myself so uh yeah well wait let's move on to rick morrow here yeah without um, further ado let's uh let's let's talk to uh let's talk to rick about being an architect how an architect can help people and uh, what we're always interested in design absolutely hope you guys enjoy Okay, so we're back with Rick Morrow by yeah, Popular Demand. Back by Popular Demand. Thanks for coming back, Rick. Happy yeah. to be here. So last time I'm here hard, all week. You hardly left. <laughs> <laughs> last time Rick talked to us about rain screening and the importance of, of knowing what you're getting into if you were to buy a leaky condo and also a little bit about just leaky condos yeah, in general. Yeah, a little bit about the history. And this time we're having him back, so Rick is an architect. So Rick, why don't you tell us a little bit about your, uh, your, your career and what sure. you do? So um, uh, technically, I'm an intern architect. The the term architect is reserved for people who are registered. Um, so if you you'll see it sometimes, people calling themselves architect where they are not. So I'm I'm not a registered architect, but I'm an intern architect. So uh, went to school at UBC School of Architecture, graduated '92, 
uh, worked for about 15 years um, in traditional architectural practices, uh, doing mostly custom homes, high-end residential homes, and some multifamily stuff, um, you know, multiple conversion dwellings. You guys have seen those in Kitsilano. Right. A um, couple apartment buildings, some commercial stuff, but uh, primarily custom high-end residential homes, which is what I like to do. Okay. So maybe just for people, I mean, everybody's heard the term architect, but can you give us a loose definition of what an architect is and what they do? Well, well or an intern architect. Sure, sure. And, and uh, as far as the definition of architect, you have to basically go to school, get your degree in architecture, and then there's a process of um, registration. There's a series of exams that you have to take. Um, similar to being a lawyer or an engineer, it's a professional degree, so you need to um, go through a, a registration process. Um, when I went through school, the process was quite um, involved as far as the exams afterwards. There was about, uh, I can't remember, eight or ten exams, and one of them was a 12-hour exam where you had to go in eight in the morning and you designed a building over the course of the day. And if you went to the washroom, they followed you, escorted you into the bathroom. It was pretty extreme. Oh, Sounds so, like the real estate exam. <laughs> <laughs> so... So things have changed now. I think they've split that up into into a, a group of exams, and it's uh, done by computer and, and that. But um, anyway, so so to be a registered architect, you have to uh, complete that process, and then there's an oral examination by your peers, and uh, then you can be a registered architect. Right. Right. Wasn't there a 12-hour stretch where you built a house too, Matt, and <laughs> it was Play-Doh? And you're, uh, <laughs> so tell us, how did you get interested in architecture and, and design in general? Sure. So when uh, when I was a kid and trying to decide what I was going to do with my life, I guess, um, in high school, they had, there was a program where you could go, uh, it was like take your kid to school day, but you could go to a professional office of, of your choice. Yeah, I did that too. I was a physiotherapist. Were you? Yeah. It so, didn't work out. <laughs> so I went, uh, funny story, so I went to a, a corporate lawyer uh, for, for a half day. I went to a mechanical engineer's office for a half day, and I went to an architect's office. So the the mechanical engineer, he was a really nice guy, but, uh, you know, as you could expect, he was into math and, uh, and he was showing me all these formulas for all this cool stuff. He was figuring out about ducting and, um, size of the equipment and all this. And I just, uh, thought, nope, that's not for me. And so then the, the, the next guy was, uh, was a corporate lawyer. And the gentleman that I got to visit was, um, he was the uh, counsel for the Potash Corporation of Saskatchewan. So quite a high profile lawyer, I would think. Right. And I went to visit him, and he had a stack of uh, folders and paper on his desk that was probably 10 inches high, and he just went through one by one. In this uh, meeting, I have to go discuss this, and then I discuss this. And, uh, you know, being a, a teenager in high school, I was having a hard time uh, staying awake when he was explaining it to me. So I thought, <laughs> oh, I don't think, you know, I want to do that. And then I went to an architect's office, and um, they were wearing jeans, and they were building a model, and then they were going to go to a job site and uh, look at a project. And I thought, well, this seems really cool. So if they would have told me what each of those guys made per year, I might have chosen something else. But at, at the time, I thought architects seemed pretty good. Um, and, it, and it happened, too, that, that uh, um, it was well-suited for my personality and temperament and some of the things I was interested in. So in the end, I'm, I'm very happy that I selected architecture and chose to pursue it. Um, came out here to, to Vancouver to go to school um, stayed afterwards, which also turned out to be fortuitous. It wasn't right when I finished, there was no work in Vancouver, but, um, not long after things started to pick up and 10 years after I was at a school, things were kind of going crazy here. And, and since then it's been very good. So, um, 
and, and for myself, I've kind of evolved. I, I started, like I said, in, in working for some small firms on custom homes, which was really interested, uh, interesting. I was very fortunate to work on some projects with good budgets and good clients. And we did some pioneering of some really interesting things that otherwise uh, a lot of architects don't get to um, experience or get exposed to. And, uh, and then I've kind of transitioned a bit out, um, uh, in some of those firms where I was working, I was doing, um, kind of what you'd call project architect work. So a lot of the uh, site work, uh, I'd be meeting with the contractors, working through problems, um, designing details about how we're going to build the, the design. And so I found that that was rewarding for me and it kind of, um, enabled me to transition into project management, whereas where I've ended up today, which is good as well. Interesting. I was just thinking, it must be like an architect's dream to have a budget, like a large budget, and yeah. freedom over some it, some discretion, right? Yeah, it's very it's very unique, and and uh, I know a lot of my classmates have uh, not had that opportunity all the time. It depends where you go work and what you work, but I mean, there was funny stories when we were younger of... Uh, you know, some of my classmates going to work for an architectural firm and they'd work in the erasing department and they would just uh, sit there yeah, erase, for, erase the, for three months over the summer yeah. running, a, you know, with an eraser. And that's what they did. I mean, th- things are different now that, you know, technology now it's all computer. So it's you're the CAD operator. But um, yeah, no, I was I was very lucky to work on some interesting projects, good clients, uh, got to do some really cool stuff, um, you know, innovative stuff. And, and it's to me, that's I mean, uh, if people ask me about architecture and design to me architecture is it's kind of like a language and you have to establish a vocabulary and and to do that you have to have exposure to some of these interesting things and and architects get it by traveling um you know seeing different projects uh looking at magazines and and that's where i think when you talk about what is an architect um to me that's the difference between an architect and a layperson or a you know, lots of people call themselves designers, and you'll see that there's this proliferation of uh, television shows. HGTV. And, yeah. Well, for sure. And, and uh, some of it's good, and, it, and it's interesting, but some of it kind of horrifies me because it gives people the idea that, uh, hey, we're going to design this thing, and a week later we've got a brand new house, and yeah. it's fantastic. Right. And, and anybody who's done a construction project or tried to design anything knows that that's kind of a long ways from reality. And um, that's not how it works out usually. It, it's not <laughs> how it works. And, and, and if you do do it in a week, it's probably not going to turn out that good. Yeah. So that, that's but, the other thing that I, that I worry about is it gives people this impression that they can just, uh, you know, go in there and start winging it and, uh, and it's going to turn out great. And usually it's just going to cost you a lot of money and be a, a big problem. So how can an architect help homeowners then? Well, I think that the benefit of an architect, likewise with, with what is an architect, um, it's a language. You've got a greater vocabulary. So first of all, they're drawing on a, on a, uh, more tools, more ideas, more, more experiences that they've had and seen and how to do things. And, and the other thing I think is that design is kind of like a muscle. Uh, so you have to be using it all the time. And an architect, that's what you do on a day-to-day basis. Whereas, you know, somebody else, uh, uh, homeowner people that do renovations flip houses whatever they they might have a flair for it and might have some skills and abilities but an architect's been trained right you you've you understand structure you understand systems of the house you understand um design you understand history you know how it all is supposed to come together and to me good design it's like food it's like music it's whatever good design is good design so whatever your taste is whether it's modern or or traditional or spanish or whatever um, good design is good design, but but an architect um, 
has the experience and the vocabulary and the skills and the talent to bring it all together in a cohesive result. So at what point should somebody engage an architect if they were, most of our listeners are going to be homeowners um, primarily. So they're either going to be living in a condo or they're going to be buying and maybe redesigning a home. So at what point do they engage the services of an architect? So that's really depends on, on what you need. So um, not everybody needs an architect. Sometimes if you're doing something minor, you might just need a, a designer. You might just need some help from uh, a contractor who's uh, going to be doing some of the work. But in general, I would say the larger the project, the more likely it is that you could use an architect. And it decides, it, it determines, sorry, it's, it depends on your preferences and your tastes too. So if, if someone, uh, if you're not that discerning, if you don't see the difference between a certain type of building and another type or don't recognize the value in it, well, then maybe it's not for you. But, but if you're someone, it's like, uh, again, like food or music, if you like fine dining, uh, you know, then maybe you appreciate a different higher level of design in architecture as well. Whereas if you just like to eat fast food all the time, well, you're not going to bother because it's not worth it for you. Right. Right. So, okay. Um, so speaking about that, so what is, is your process as an architect? Do you have a process or? Oh, for sure. So, so for me, um, the thing that I like about design and architecture is you're basically trying to solve a problem but the the challenge is to define what the problem is first so you know you meet with your clients you analyze the building you look at um, what their needs are and then you try and determine um, well okay here's what we have to work with what's the problem with this uh, situation or what what do we want to try and solve and that has to do with um, natural light it has to do with orientation it has to do with size of spaces and materials and systems and the the beauty and the the art of architecture is how to bring all that together in a beautiful way right just as an aside um in what you do sounds complicated in terms of if i was a homeowner and i wanted to engage your services do you have like a consultation fee or do most architects i know that in past episode we in past episodes i've had people talk about how um it's good we got some sort of basis on price because yeah it sounds this sounds intimidatingly complex. no most most architects will will have an initial consultation meeting for free um there's a the uh, the aibc which is the architectural institute of british columbia that's the governing body for architects they have what's called a tariff of fees and that sets the uh recommended costs and fees for typical services that an architect would provide and, and it's interesting, we have that uh, in the name of public safety, basically, because as you could imagine, architects, you know, they're not just designing houses, they're designing schools and hospitals and uh, public buildings. So you, you can't just do everything on lowest price wins mm-hmm. because the, the Institute has determined that, you know, there's certain things where you have to have a minimum charge to do the job properly. So, so uh, likewise, with, with, um, a homeowner, if you're looking for services, for sure, you can uh, meet with an architect, you discuss uh, what it is you're looking for. And depending on whether it's a good fit, and whether the services uh, seem appropriate, the architect will give you a fee proposal for what they would recommend. And 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 they have, uh, if you go to the AIBC's website, which I'm sure is AIBC.com, or we'll put it in the show notes. Yeah. So, so if you go to their website, they'll talk about um, projects that require the services of an architect because there are certain times where you have to have an architect and in vancouver typically you have to have what they call a uh, registered professional 
uh, on a project. Now, for for houses, that can be an engineer or an architect. Um, but if you're going to choose an architect, uh, on the AIBC website, there should be a scope of services that lists all the different things that an architect would typically do. Mm-hmm. And that can start all the way from if you decide to buy raw land and you're going to build a house, they can help you with site analysis, um, road access, siting uh, of the house, the best location, direction, all that stuff. Or uh, it could be in an urban site. It can talk about zoning. Uh, you can talk about square footage that you can do on the house. It can talk about uh, all that stuff, height limitations. Uh, so in dealing with that, that sounds like a lot to do with zoning and, yeah. and permits and bylaws. So yes. does an architect help with dealing with city permits and bylaws? Oh, or? certainly. Architects are, are, that's one of the places where we provide the most benefit and value. We're dealing with City Hall on a regular basis. Typically, you'd have a relationship with the planners. You know the rules and zoning and bylaws and regulations, square footage allowances, how to do the calculations, all that stuff. So, so that's that's a definite place where the architect's going to provide service that a layperson would have a very difficult time navigating. Not just the rules and regulations, but the process. The process with city hall can be complicated depending on what you're doing, what zone it's in, etc. Right, and you might not want to speak to this, but uh, we have a lot of clients who do renovations and and city hall is very complicated getting those permits is very complicated do you have any thoughts on people people? seem to be about 50 50 some 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 get permits some don't do you have any thoughts on permits or um yeah i suppose there's a proper answer on the record and off the record answer so so we won't tell anyone where you live sure as far as permits go um, among friends here if you talk to the city they will tell you what the at what point work requires a permit and it will surprise you at the level officially of what requires a permit like it's it's almost like if you're going to replace a sink that's a fixture you should get a plumbing permit so it's it's kind of extreme at that end what what requires a permit i think anytime you're doing something substantial enough that you're going to affect the main systems of a house where it could be dangerous if you're doing major rewiring um plumbing you're not going to cause any uh danger injuries to anybody but you might make a mess of things and cause a problem for yourself <laughs> right. um you know insulation walls like the city really wants to regulate um zoning um height all that stuff like the their their bylaws they want to protect that and and then from a building code perspective they want to be careful about structure and electrical where it's dangerous right they don't want someone going in there and doing a renovation when they don't know what they're doing right structurally you know taking out bearing walls all of a sudden you got a risky situation or doing something electrical where you could cause a fire hazard etc right now you you must see the city a lot differently than than a lot of people when you're probably looking at design and you're interested in design. Sure. Do you see the city favoring certain design principles, or do you see Vancouver kind of favoring de- uh, or, or leaning towards a certain design, West Coast contemporary or whatever? No, I think I think in general that Vancouver and and where we live is quite sensitive to design in a positive way. Uh, there's there's an awareness. There's a, consciousness about it and depending what uh, part of the city you live in there will be more stringent regulations if you're in a certain zone that's uh, heritage sensitive uh, i think rs5 or rs5s some of those right there's design guidelines that will dictate things that the city wants to see and that's because of the nature of those neighborhoods there's lots of traditional homes they want you to fit in and be respectful and and most architects want to do that as well so um and then in other areas that, which have less restri- less restriction, RS1 or, or some of those, um, 
the city recognizes good design, I think. And, and, and if you follow, it's hard to, it's hard to regulate design because it's a subjective thing. Sure. So, so within their rules, there's only certain limits. I mean, they can talk about height, they can talk about square footage, they can talk about massing a little bit and massing is like the, the shape and volume of the house, but it's hard to dictate whether that's going to look good or not good afterwards. Right. So, so does the, is the city pro design for certain things versus another? Not necessarily. I mean, they, they try to be sensitive in areas where there's a, a, a strong character already and, and, uh, any art, like I said, any good practicing architect would want to do that as well. Be contextual. Right. So how about, so uh, we realize that, that design is subjective, but do you have any kind of, uh, criteria that you use to judge good design? Yeah, or? How do you personally judge good design? Uh, to me, good design, man, that's a good question. I, I don't know. I mean, it, it, it's got to look cool. <laughs> not like a, not like a UFO just landed in the, <laughs> so I, I know this? that building you're talking about. But, but is that about, um, fitting in sort of with the historical flavor? No, of the, I don't, no? I don't think so. Not necessarily. So, so I think you, you, you can be respectful but but different and and with myself i i mean people come to my house and it's you know i've done a little bit of work over the years and i call mine a, it, it's a renovation not a restoration i i live in an old house but i didn't feel compelled to you know make it exactly like uh, that vintage of a house and you know because that's not how most people live these days people want open floor plans and modern mm-hmm. finishes and so so i've got an old house with an open floor plan you know and that's that's what i like but but good design, um, you know. I think you want to have um, a pleasant shape. You want to have uh, it has to be functional. It has to meet the client's uh, needs, the user needs. Uh, it should do that in an elegant way. You want nice proportions. You want nice materials. Good workmanship. I mean, that's what good architecture is. Whether it's one style or another, right? Good design. What about from the perspective of the exterior of buildings and, and city skylines and, and and that sort of thing? Do you do you have uh, there's obviously a lot of new buildings coming downtown that are very kind of uh i don't know the best word to use it but unique i call well, unique iconic you think of vancouver yeah, house coming yeah. um you know and that uh, are angles. that are linked very closely to an architect as well sure yeah and, that, and that's an interesting phenomenon when, when you go when you go to architecture school there's a lot of this um I would call that kind of the cult of the architect where it's signature buildings, it's a name, whatever. I'm not sure. Like that can be good and bad. To me, a building has to meet the user requirements first, has to be functional, has to do what it's supposed to do, and then it should do it in a beautiful way. So I think sometimes there's a push the other way where there's such a strong emphasis on the signature look and the appearance, whatever, you probably sacrifice some of the functionality and and the... user needs right so i'd be a little nervous about some twisting building and ended up with a column in the middle of my living room or something but this um, makes me think of your the last time we spoke about rain screening and how to get to the 20th floor and do the well exactly right (laughs) you know how how are you going to replace that window when it fails on this uh, twisting hanging cantilever creation i mean it looks really cool but uh, i don't want to be the window washer (laughs) um do you have an architect that you that you admire that one of your favorites i mean that well, sort of threads the needle on that, what you're talking about? Uh, I don't know about favorites. I mean, there's there's certain types of work that I like. I like a lot of the contemporary work that's out there. We, we've got some great architects in Vancouver. I mean, Arthur Erickson's uh, iconic Vancouver architect who right. 
did some fantastic um, uh, work integrating modern architecture and landscape. And that's, that's one of the beautiful things that he did was this integration of inside and outside and glass and, but don't talk about Arthur Erickson and, and uh, building envelope at the same time because his buildings were notorious for leaking and having problems with <laughs> yeah. the water ingress, right? So Vancouver is known as a city of glass. Uh, I'm just wondering from a design perspective, you know, often you hear people criticize Toronto glass towers there as being uh, not very functional. In Vancouver, does that apply? Uh, I, w- I would think that maybe... Maybe less so, but at the same time, yeah, if you talk to a building um, uh, envelope consultant or if you talk to somebody about building science, um, it doesn't make that much sense to have a pure glass building, even in Vancouver. I mean, our our climate is milder than Toronto, say, probably. But at the same time, um, you know, heating versus cooling glass is not efficient. It's not a good insulator you know you people talk about r values right so a normal wall in a house you put r20 insulation nowadays right old, old houses in two by fours you have r14 glass is like r3 or something if you're lucky and especially you get a, a curtain wall tower all glass so you have a whole building of r3 wall assembly envelope and so not very efficient for keeping the heat in and not very efficient for keeping the, the... At least it's got air conditioning. Yeah, yeah, or for keeping it cool when it's the other yeah. way around. So so you have to have these uh, major mechanical systems to make up for that. So really from a design perspective, you know, if you talk to a building scientist, he'd probably be talking about, well, this wall should be solid because you're going to lose all your heat out here and this wall should have less glass and there should be some glass here. So no, we, we don't... The, the towers we build here are not really... Um, sensitive to the the real requirements or needs for if you were going to design it from a purely technical what's going to be the best and right? also environmentally yeah it's, it's more expensive because it because it requires a much higher mechanical demand whatever to, to manage right. the environment in those buildings right do you have a favorite building in vancouver uh, I have some. Um, I, I like some of the new towers. Like some of the new glass towers are really nice. I, I like the old Macmillan Bloedel building by Arthur Erickson. It's kind of a uh, large concrete sculptural building, and that's just my preference of when I was sort of going through school and looking at buildings. So I always appreciated the shape of that and and the uh, design inspiration. I think this one you'll have to fact check, but I believe he talked about the. Um, referencing it to the structure of a tree where it's kind of wider at the base and tapers up and narrows towards the top. And it's, it's just a, it's just a good looking building. It's, it's kind of timeless. I mean, to me, that's good design. It should be timeless in that sense, but we've got some nice towers. I mean, the, the Shaw tower is a nice building. Shangri-La is a nice building. I mean, the glass buildings are nice. Yeah. You know, and Shaw tower has, um, the exterior is called curtain, curtain wall, curtain wall. Yeah. So, so curtain wall, when we talked before about um, uh, building envelope and we were talking about rain screen, so a curtain wall is basically uh, a glass system and, and it has a, a rain screen built into it. So the, you've got a series of, of um, vertical structural elements, which are the mullions, so that's typically aluminum, and then you've got glass infill, clear glass into the units, and then typically they call it spandrel glass or it's like painted glass uh, in between the floor levels. And then the whole thing's assembled and you put these um, uh, gaskets on top and beauty caps and it it looks like a slick, polished, you know, 
piece Amazing. of beautiful tech, uh, urban design. You didn't work finished. on that and building, they, did you? No, I did not. And they actually <laughs> gave a, they gave a two ten ten warranty on that, so they gave a ten year warranty on the exterior of that building. Yeah, which, yeah. Well, the, the curtain wall system is very good for for water resistance because it's glass and metal, and it's designed and it's uh, rain screen, so so it's very good, right? There's no. There's no materials that are penetrable by water. Uh, uh, so the, the trick with those buildings is all the detailing at the junctions, right? The flashings, mm-hmm. intersections, right. the, the uh, transitions from one material to another. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay, well, maybe we'll leave it there. But thank you so much for your time again, Rick. Back by yeah. popular demand. Yeah, well, third episode coming soon. <laughs> Anytime. <laughs> if you Take have time. <laughs> Take care. Right. Thank you. Thanks very much. So that was our talk with Rick Morrow, architect extraordinaire. Uh, hope you guys enjoyed. Yeah, super interesting guy. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Big fan of Rick's, but um, that yeah. So a lot of lot of uh, good information came out of there. I I don't know if uh, I don't know. I, it would be interesting to see kind of what percentage of um, people renovating use architects or architects to help with design. I know a lot of people, uh, you know probably go the uh you know especially depending on how much hgtv they watch but uh, they might want to come up with their own plans and that sort of thing but um <laughs> it, it definitely helps i can tell you rick rick just did the drawings for our place and uh they're incredible and things i would have i was gonna never say tying, thought ba- of. T- tying back into to uh this idea of uh the ongoing renovation here yeah i mean you just showed me those the the drawings that rick did for your your place and it it looks amazing. It's um, cool too was, because he he does not only the the plans he AutoCADs all the plans, but then he also does drawing renditions of of what things will look like when they're done. He just sketches them out, and it's it's amazing. It's like you can see exactly what the Reno is going to be like. Yeah. So um, I wonder if I wonder is it, are we able to put those on the show notes? Yeah, we haven't sure. Discussed this, but sure, yeah, I'll yeah. Talk, but we'll I'll put, talk we'll to put his first, drawings maybe. up. But um, yeah, we'll, yeah, we'll put exciting. those in the in the show notes for sure. So, um, cool. Matt, what else? Uh, what else should we mention before we go? People need to uh, need to sign up for our Facebook page. We always post the episodes. We'd love to hear your comments and ideas for future shows. Yeah, and absolutely. The Facebook page, uh, rate us in iTunes. That always helps. I think it's still helping the show grow. Still yeah, finding we love to read those. Finding our legs here for and, sure. And um, yeah, we should note the uh, we're, we're currently running a sponsorship on the podcast. Uh, Till the end of by, August. Uh, Scalina Real Estate, yeah, at least your place, and uh, and you get a thousand a thousand dollar credit towards closing costs or or you know whatever right. whatever you uh, feel like your architectural be used fees if you buy a uh, <laughs> <laughs> if if you buy a reno on the on the yeah yeah and uh, and uh, yeah just last but not least uh, I just spoke with uh, with a, a listener uh, G two who was a little concerned that he, he didn't hear us there for a couple of weeks. So right. we're back, we're coming in every week and, uh, and yeah, don't got, give up on us. Even don't if, give up on us guys. Even if you got to do it by phone. All right, we'll get yeah, back exactly. to your, uh, you probably have to walk the dog and, uh, get to bed. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. So, uh, Adam, how can people reach you? Uh, 778-866-4574 or Adam at com and Matt, at 778-847-2854 or matt at scalinarealestate.com. And uh, we also got that nonpartisan line. Info at scalinarealestate.com.
All right, guys, have a good week, and uh, we'll speak to you soon. Okay, thanks. Have a great week. Two thousand faces for radio. Subscribe today. 